about halfway through the book of Philippians, and we continue to talk about this joy that Paul has, and Paul keeps talking about, and and we keep going through this, um, you know, what are the, what are the keys? And we've talked about that before. That the big the big key is to not be um, centered on yourself. The more your focus is on yourself, the less likely you're to have joy. The best you can do is find happiness, um, and it might last for a little while. But really abiding joy that goes through good times and bad times and everything in between. Well, it comes from being centered on others. And it's not just a kind of a blind centering on others. It's, it's actually what Paul has been doing is he's been, he's been investing in other people's lives. He's been, he's been sharing the gospel. He's been discipling them. He's helping them to grow. And because of that, like his joy, his possibility for joy is almost unending certainly overwhelming just in in his time because there's so many people that he can look to and he can know that that he was at least there for part of their journey and then he's also seeing it come back to him where they're now uh, serving him and helping him and of course as Paul's going to come back to especially next week He's going to come back to where, where it's, about, it's about the gospel. And it's not just that he knows the gospel. It's not just that he knows the facts. It's not that, that he can explain the plan of salvation. But it is the gospel that he has experienced personally. He knows the difference Jesus Christ has made in his life. He knows the change that has happened. And he knows that his life is so much better even though he was all set up, he was all set up to kind of have a kind of a, a good life, a life where he would have had a good reputation, had a good job, had a good family. But he's found that it just was, it was not where joy was. And so now, because he knows the gospel. He knows the change that's happened in his life. He's seen it happening again and again in the people that he's invested in around him. And he can see where the gospel leads, what it can do in this world. It's, it's just joy. Every time there's, there's a movement, every time there's an advance. Well, today we're going to look at a couple of examples he holds up. He's already held up the prime example, Jesus. And as I told you before, you know, we all have a convenient excuse for not living up to Jesus' standards, because we can all say, but we're not Jesus. And it's true, you're not. But now he's going to give us two more examples. Two more people that you could actually, in some ways, they could have had excuses for not being the way that they were in terms of being faithful and really examples of this joy. And I, and I kind of think what Paul's doing here, it, it kind of reminds me of when I was younger, um, when I was a kid, I used to watch those, you know, the little excerpts on maybe Good Morning America or something where they had, like they had a, like a chef come on there and, 
and show you how to prepare a meal. And of course, you know, you would see them like, um, you know, they would show you how to mix everything, cut everything, put it all together, and then they'd have a commercial break, and then come back, and there it was, all baked and cooked, and it was like, wow, that's an awesome commercial. You know, this was, I think, pre-microwave times too. And as a kid, I couldn't figure that out. Or maybe I couldn't figure out why my mom took so long to make food, right? But she would, she would, I mean, it was usually somebody like Julia Child or somebody like that, and then you'd be like, wow, that really looks good. But it was obviously, as I got older and I understood, they had prepared it beforehand. But it was the finished product. We got to see what it looks like. And instead of just seeing how it's made, I got to see what it looks like when it's all done. And so Paul's been talking, and in all of his letters, he tells us how to make things. You, you, you want the recipe for a, a good, healthy, faithful Christian life? He tells us all those things. And today, he's going to show us some finished products. And I think that helps some of us. Because there are some of us that we, we're afraid because the example of Jesus is obviously so high, the standard is so high, we're afraid. But I think it helps us also because I think a lot of people in the world, they don't really want to serve. They don't want to serve. And it's poss possibly because they don't know what it looks like. But I think other people, like they're willing to serve, but they, they don't always serve the right masters. They're, you know, they're, they're more than willing to follow, but they, they want to follow somebody who somehow, um, you know, gets, you know, does for them what, what, they, what they think they need or they want. And a lot of times other people, if they do serve, they're serving for the wrong reasons. What we're going to see today, we've already seen Jesus. Then we're going to see Timothy and Epaphroditus. And next week we're going to read about Paul. And we're going to read about people that want to serve. And they want to serve the right master. And they want to serve for the right reasons. And because they do that, there's, there's joy. It's, it's hard because what's kind of the push in, in our society and really in our world today, the push is, 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 is against serving in terms of serving a master. Because we all want to be like, you know, we're in control. We're the captains of our fate. We're the ones who, who um, you know, should be the ones telling other people to serve us. Um, we, we live in this, this world where we think we can somehow exist without any authority that's kind of over us. And if we do, we want to push back against it. And then we live in times like these where nobody wants to go out in public without a mask. We've had a summer where our beaches are, are empty. That there's something about us that, that on one hand, you know, we, 
we say we want to push back against people telling us what to do. And then on another hand, we just go right along. Um, people have talked about herd immunity, you know, about if we're going to have herd immunity, can we get enough people that have antibodies and that we have built up a herd immunity? Well, I think what we've demonstrated is as much as we want to fiercely fight for our independence and no one can tell me what to do, that we certainly have herd mentality. And I'm not saying it's a good or bad thing. I'm just saying we have it. And it reveals something to us. And what it reveals to us is that no matter how much we think we don't need to have a master, we don't need to, you know, anybody to tell us what to do, and we don't need to serve anyone, no matter how much we, we push back about that and we think there is still something inside of us, there's still something inside of us that needs a master. And the problem is, is that we think of things like service and master and obedience. We think of all of those things in a, in a kind of the world's concept, which is all based on power. Who gives commands? The most powerful. Who obeys? The ones who have to. That's the way we see things, because that's really how the world works for the most part. And it works under this power construct. But, but what God is trying to, to help us understand is that's how the world is. That's not how I am. And we talked about this last week about how God wants us to operate under a, a love construct. And when power is not what's driving us and instead God's love is what's driving us, service it's not inferiority. Service is actually a way to reveal something about who God is. And so it's hard for us because we're, we're in this world and as, even though we've become Christians and we have the Holy Spirit in us, there's still this part of us that just, we're just like the world and we just don't see service and obedience as strengths and as positives, and certainly not as divine. Well, here's Paul. He's going to give us two examples today of what he's been talking about. And again, just to remind ourselves, he's under house arrest. He can't go anywhere. He's you know, waiting to go to um, a trial. Most likely, he's going to be appearing before this crazy guy named Nero, the emperor, in other words, he's not really looking, thinking that he's going to get justice. He might get justice, but he might get a whole bunch of other things. If, if you uh, just going to warn you, it can be kind of, I guess for lack of a better term, gross. But go read about Nero and about some of the, just the perverseness of his life, how, how incredibly evil he was. And this is the emperor that Paul has appealed to. And so we come to this, this verse in chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. And he says this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. 
For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of, Christ, of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served, me, served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not, not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, Christ risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So here's Paul, and again, he's, he's giving us these two examples, and and as far as Epaphroditus goes, this is pretty much all we know about Epaphroditus. And on one hand, that's a shame. On another hand, it's pretty awesome that here's Epaphroditus, because of his faithfulness, you know, 2,000 years later, a bunch of strange people on the other side of the world in a strange land are, are reading his name. And we are we're seeing his witness. Timothy, on the other hand, we know a ton about Timothy. We know so much about Timothy. You can go back to the book of Acts and you can see when, when Paul and Timothy first meet. I mean, we even know his grandma. And all of the New Testament, we don't know very many people's grandmas, but we know Timothy's. And we know that Timothy, you know, comes from his grandmother was a, was a believer. And then his mom was a believer, and now he's become a believer. So we can see, like, just in a short amount of time, there's three generations in his family that have become believers. We don't really know what happened to his dad. The, you know, kind of prevailing opinion is his, his dad probably died when he was, um, when he was younger. And it kind of helps us understand how Paul and Timothy developed this kind of father-son relationship. Paul talks about him as his son, and we understand that as, you know, his spiritual son that he helped bring to Christ. But there's a lot of people Paul helped bring to Christ, and he doesn't call them son. He doesn't use the terminology of father and son. And it's like God has provided here for Timothy not just salvation, but he's also provided for him someone who's like a father to him. And for Paul also, Paul, you know, the belief is that if Paul was a Pharisee, then he was likely married. But we know by the time he's writing his letters that he's not married anymore. And so in a way, God kind of gives him this family. It's just blessing upon blessing here. But we know, we know Timothy. We know that his, his father was a, 
was a Gentile. We're not sure if he was Greek or not. Um, his, Timothy's name sounds Greek. And his mother was Jewish, and his mother had converted to Christianity. So she was, she was one of the uh, Jewish people who had come to Christ. We're not sure if she was a Hebraist or a Hellenized Jew, but probably Hellenized, because a Hebraist Jew would have been unlikely to have married someone who was a Gentile, for one thing. And secondly, um, we find out that Timothy wasn't circumcised. And so we even, read, we even read that story. We read that story in the book of Acts of how, you know, Timothy, when he's going to go out and minister and go out and serve others, that before that happens, Paul has him, has him circumcised. He says, you need to be circumcised. Even though they had just come to the conclusion at the Council of Jerusalem that Christians didn't need to be circumcised. But Paul knew that that Timothy's ministry would be limited. He wouldn't really be able to, to minister to, to Jewish people if he wasn't circumcised. And so Paul says, we've we got to do this. It doesn't tell us whether Timothy was happy about this or not. The Bible doesn't say, and Timothy rejoiced, or and Timothy said, Paul, let me pray about it, and I'll get back to you. We don't get any of that in the Bible we just get that it happened. He did it. And so we know so much more about Timothy. We know later on that Paul's going to, to send Timothy to be the leader of the church at Ephesus. We know that, he's, we know that he's, he's young, not just like in the Lord when we first meet him, but he's really young and, and, he's, and he continues to be like, younger than a lot of the other Christians. And, you know, in that particular day, it, you know, it was a big deal. It was, you know, for, for Paul to be using Timothy as an example tells you how exemplary Timothy was. Because Timothy, um, Paul didn't choose some, some older person. He could have. But he didn't choose an older person as his example here. He chooses Timothy. He chooses Epaphroditus. Again, we're not 100% sure about Epaphroditus. We don't know how, how old he is or anything like that. But we know Timothy is a young man. And to use someone who would have not been like, you know, considered like superior in their culture as your example tells you how exemplary Timothy was. And so we come to this and we see these phrases that he uses to, when he first talks about Timothy. And the kind of key point there is that what he says in verse 20, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Faithful servants, as we've said before, they're concerned for the welfare of others. See how faithfulness and joy are tied together? A lot of people talk about being faithful to God, having faith in God, and somehow it doesn't result in service to others. And you've got to ask yourself, how can that be? How can 
faithfulness to God not result in a, in a desire to, to reach out and to serve others. And here in particular, it's serving others in the body of Christ. And so he, he gives that kind of, kind of highest praise he can give. I have no one like him. I have no one like him. You see, Paul is considered, like, largely considered the greatest Christian who's ever lived. He, he did more at a crucial time in the church's history. And the greatest Christian who's ever lived says about Timothy, I have no one like him. No one like him. And then he says, well, here's, here's one reason. He's going to be genuinely concerned for your welfare. He is thinking of how he can help you. He's not thinking about, he's not thinking about himself. He wants to help you. And he's not just going to help you by just doing whatever you say. And he's not going to help you by coming in and thinking like, this is how you need help, so I'm going to help you. But in the next verse it says, it says that they all seek their own interest. But he seeks the interest of Jesus. See, again, true joy comes from being other-directed. And other-directed comes in that we would serve others. And we would serve others not for our benefit, but for their benefit. And that we would serve others not simply based on our thinking of what needs to be done or what they think needs to be done, but that we would do it out of the interests of Jesus Christ. And that's the second point, that, that faithful servants, they seek the interests of Jesus Christ. And it would just seem to make sense. It, it's Jesus is Lord, not church at Philippi is Lord. If Jesus is Lord, if that's who you're calling to be Lord, then it is His interest that we care about. And what's great about this is that if you go back to Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11, we see that in the interests of Jesus... What's there? Not, not to use his divinity for his own advantage. So even Jesus is being other-directed here. It's not like, oh, okay, this is all a big kind of a shell game, a trick, that, that somehow Jesus is talking about being a servant, but really he's going to go, surprise, um, now you all are serving me for my benefit, and I'm going to be just like all these other rulers and kings and lords and masters that you see. It's like, no, it's not the case. We're seeking the interests of Jesus Christ, and what Christ came to do was to serve, to serve others, not for his own benefit. And of course, all of this points to the gospel. Again, we're seeing this recurring theme running throughout 
Philippians, the gospel, the interest of Jesus Christ is the spread of the gospel. And the spread of the gospel is not, sometimes when people talk about spread of the gospel, they think it means just telling as many people as you can about Jesus. That is one way of thinking about the spread of the gospel, and it's important. But there's another way, the spread of the gospel, and that's the spread of the effects of the gospel in your life, in my life, in our church, and then as our church reaches out to the community. All of that's in the interest of Christ. It's not just that we go and make sure everybody knows, but it's that we are all seeing the gospel grow in us, take hold in us, change us. And that's what faithful servants do. Faithful servants, they seek the interests of Christ. They want to see the gospel. They want to see the kingdom. And they want to see it show up, not just in words and thoughts, but they want to see it show up in our lives, in our relationships, especially with each other. That's our interest. And so if, if, if I'm being a faithful servant and I'm looking out for the welfare of others and I'm looking out for, for, the, for the spread of the gospel and I'm looking for the gospel to, to grow in us and to continually change us, Again, what joy. But for some reason, we have trouble with this. We have no trouble saying Jesus is Lord. We have no trouble saying the Lord Jesus Christ. But we often struggle with Him being Lord. Now, understand, God is God. Jesus is the Son of God. He's Lord whether you acknowledge Him or not. But for some reason, we think His, His Lordship is limited to a title. We think it's just a title. It's not anything important. Um, and again, we get back to this sense of we want to get rid of this idea of, of obedience and authority. We think it's just a title. It's not a title. And he wants to be Lord of all. Not Lord of some. He wants to be Lord of your life. Not just Lord of, you know, the religious pocket in you. You know, my, one of my daughters, you know, used, would say like we would be eating and she'd be like, oh, I'm full. And then Cheryl might say, well, we have ice cream. And she would say, my chicken pocket is full, but my ice cream pocket is open, right? Pretty smart when you think about it. And if we were cows, maybe there's some anatomy that we could put behind that. But I think a lot of people think about that with, with Lord of all. It's like Christianity, he's only Lord of the, of the, of the spiritual pocket. But he's not Lord of everything else. He's not Lord of every decision I make. 
He's not Lord of my possessions. He's not Lord of my time. He's not Lord of my talent. That's mine. He gets the spiritual part, though, and that's really important. So I think he's happy with our arrangement. I mean, that's how a lot of us think. It's like, no, he's Lord of all. And if we're going to be faithful servants like Timothy, then we seek the interests of Christ. What else should a true servant of Christ do? Well, we see this story of Epaphroditus. And it's kind of hard to put it all together, but it seems like when Epaphroditus was on the way from Paul to go to Philippi, that he gets sick, and he gets really sick. And instead of like, like not giving up, I mean, instead of giving up, he, he wants to complete his mission. And it even tells us that he nearly died for the work of Christ. And that's, that's what faithful servants do. If Jesus is Lord, faithful servants are willing to give all in service of the Lord. As long as we have like a, a human understanding of in this power construct of understanding, you know, being a servant, this doesn't really make sense. But if we understand that, the, that our, ver, our Lord is in fact the supreme example of a servant, and if we understand that our Lord, when He gives us His all, it's way more than when we give our all, we realize this is unfair. This is not a fair trade. But it's unfair to Jesus, not to us. When we think like, oh, I have to give my all? Whew, that doesn't seem fair. Yeah, it's not. But we think it's not fair to us. Like, what am I getting out of this? What are you getting out of this? What did Jesus do for you? What did he give you? What does he continually give you even now? And what does he promise to give you in the future? Is that anything compared to your all? And if we really get it, we really understand it. We go, no, it really isn't. In, in fact, it's a great deal. It's a bargain. Because to Jesus, even our all, what we offer is our all. Without Him, it's not worth anything to Him. It's only worth something to Him because He makes us worthy. And we see Epaphroditus, you know, getting ill, willing to go do whatever it took, takes for the cause of Christ. I also want you to look at this really interesting, um, re really interesting part there in uh, verse 16. And he says, For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. You can see that? 
You want to hear how, we don't know much about Epaphroditus, but we want to hear how Epaphroditus is other-centered, how he's directed towards others rather than himself. He's the sick one, and he's really sick, and he could very well die, and his concern is that other people are upset that he's sick, that other people are worried and concerned that he's sick. He's more concerned about them and that they're suffering because they've heard that he's sick than him being in the middle of being sick. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure I can't, I can't be like Epaphroditus here. If I'm really sick or I'm almost going to die, I, I would like to think how that news is affecting you. But I'm going to be honest with you, probably not on the top of my list. And that's what we see here at Epaphroditus, this other-centeredness, more concerned about how the others are than what he's actually going through, even though he's the one who's suffering. Again, what does this look like? It's a, it's a smaller picture of what... Of what Paul is doing, that Paul himself is here in prison awaiting trial, perhaps death, and he's more concerned about the people outside than about his own predicament. It's, Epaphroditus reminds us of what Jesus did, that and Paul is grateful. Paul is grateful that it didn't cost Epaphroditus his life. But he says he was willing to give it. And that reminds us of what he had just said about Jesus. That Jesus humbled himself, became a servant, obedient even to death on a cross. And so Epaphroditus gives us an example and you know that people are praying for Epaphroditus to get better. They want Epaphroditus to get better, and he wants to get better. But he's willing to give everything, even if it's his life. We get hints of that back and forth. We get the, the uncertainty of, of Paul about his own situation. We even see uh, some of it here, where he says like, you know, you know, if I get to go see you. He believes he's going to be released. But he's there because he was willing to do what God directed him to do, even though he knew it took him to Jerusalem, even though he knew in Jerusalem there were people that wanted him dead. And now it's been almost four years of being in two different types of prison. So even Paul is, is, in a subtle way, talking about how he's in the same situation. He's willing to die. He's willing to give it all. But make no mistake, faithful servants are willing to give all in service of the Lord. That doesn't mean simply they're willing to die for their faith. It does mean that. 
But it also means that they're willing to give everything less than their life too. It's not just that you would die for your faith, but that it's that, it's that every second, every moment is in service of God. Service of the Lord. Seeking the interests of Jesus Christ. Being concerned about the welfare of others. That it's, it's not just, oh yeah, someday, someday, if I ever have to give my life for Christ, I will. But in the meantime, ah, I'm just going to live however I want. But you tell me, you tell me if there, you know, if soldiers come marching into your church and threaten to kill everybody, because I'll run over there and I'll be right there with you, brother. I don't care if you're going to be with me at that point if we're not here together now. The gospel isn't simply a bunch of people, you know, years from now dying for their faith. The gospel is people living a transformed life right now, every second, every moment of the day. This is what matters. That's what faithful servants do. And that gets us to this last point. And uh, there's a couple different ways I could have said this, but, but I say faithful servants serve because it is who they are. And I should have probably said better, it is because it is who they were made to be. How did Timothy and Epaphroditus get this way? How did Paul get this way? Well, we know a couple things that they do have in common. And what they all have in common is they have this moment in their lives when they call upon the name of the Lord. When they, when they realize that just trying to produce their own righteousness, their own goodness, it's, it's going to fail. Because they know what's really in their hearts. They have, even if they perhaps tried to lie to themselves and say that they're good and that they're righteous, they know that that's not true. And they have this encounter with Jesus Christ. They have this encounter with His Word. With Paul, it's firsthand. Paul's on the road to, to Damascus, and he, he's going there to, because he wants to arrest Jewish people who become Christians. And he wants to throw them in prison, or worse. And on the way, this light comes from heaven. And he has an encounter with the risen Lord. And his life is forever changed. Timothy gets it in a different way, partly because, probably because of the example of his mom and his grandma. And probably because of that, he, you know, he hung around with other Christians. But then he has the incredible blessing of meeting Paul. And through just the, the witness of so many people, the, the ministry of so many people in his life, he becomes a Christian. And again, what the Bible promises us is that when we truly have faith, when we have truly have faith, we have been made new. All of this thinking about, about how negative servanthood and Lord and all this stuff seems so negative or seems like there's inferiority, superiority. And here, 
it all changes because we realize we're being like Christ. We have His Holy Spirit. And as we grow more and more in our faith, one of the things that we're going to find is one of the signs is that it's not a struggle to serve. It's not a struggle to serve. And even when we can't serve, we want to serve. But it's not a struggle. It's not about, oh, I might not do it right. You know what? You might not do it right. You might do it horribly wrong. But if you're saying, I, I, God, I'm, I'm yours. How can I serve? Even if you do it horribly wrong, if you did it for the right motives, you know what you're going to do? You're either going to come to the realization that what God was, had said is, don't do this, and you thought he said do this, or you're going to figure out what you did, get, what you did wrong and you're going to get better at it. And you're going to grow. And then the next time you do it, you serve better. And so, we, we, as we grow, it's, it's not a struggle to serve. It is our nature. And I want to just close with this last verse that he says here, because I think it's important. It's really weird how we're reading Proverbs in our Sunday school, and, and we actually ended on a very similar point. So it, it's in verse 29. He says, receive him. He's talking about Epaphroditus. Receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. He says, receive him and honor such men. You see, what, what Paul is saying is that in the community of faith, those of us who are Believers in Christ who are trying to be like Christ. That Christ is changing us and helping us to become like Him. He said, it should be with great joy when we get to meet these other servants. When we, it shouldn't be like jealousy. It shouldn't be like, oh, you know, I, I, you know, I can do that. I can do that better. You know, it shouldn't be like, that, that wasn't good enough. Or why, why, why is this person doing this? But these Timothy and Epaphroditus who are serving with these pure hearts, even though Epaphroditus in some ways doesn't get to do everything that, that he wanted to do, he says, receive them with joy and honor them. You see, the more we will receive with joy people who are servants, the more we will honor one another when we serve, the more service can grow. The more we can become like Christ. But when we just don't notice the servants, we don't necessarily them down or think negatively but we don't even notice them 
you know, the good thing about somebody who's like a Timothy or a Paphroditus or a Paul is that they will just keep on serving. Just how they are. But for a lot of people who aren't yet there, that kind of strength in their, that, their faith, no matter how well-meaning they are, no matter how well-intended, no matter how selfless that, that they are, that, that we all have breaking points. We, we all have points where we're, we're going to go through a hard time in our life, a stressful time in our life, or maybe all we're hearing is criticism and we're not hearing anything. And it's not that we want to hear it. It's not that you're doing it so that people will notice you. But Paul is pointing to this, this strength we have when we encourage one another about doing what is good and what is right. And that should be like really the mark of, of, of who we are. You know, sometimes they give uh, marital advice and they say, for every one criticism you have of your spouse, give them ten praises. Anybody? No, never mind. Uh, I won't look at my wife. But, you know, because some of you are, you know, your ledger is kind of out of whack. Um, but it's true. It's easier to be critical. It's easier to be vocal when you're negative. It's harder to, for some reason, to, to tell people the good things. And so what we find here is we find these faithful servants. These faithful servants who have the right action. You know, he says... Timothy is proven. You've seen it. But they also have the right heart. They're genuinely concerned. And in that, when we find those people, we rejoice. Because they're a treasure. And when we can bring more and more of us together who are like that, the Spirit will abound. Let's pray.